Welcome to another episode of The Eccentrics with UI, where I have conversations with individuals that embody the three criteria that I look for before bringing them on the show. And those in the criteria are that they have traveled a fair bit, they have created a money-making venture, and lastly, they are willing to share a setback that occurred one time in their life, and most importantly, how did they rebound from that setback? Before we go into today's episode and I tell you who we are having on the show today, I wanted to let you know about my weekly newsletter that comes out once a week titled Three Nuggets Weekly. It's uh, a newsletter where I share three things during the previous week that I found valuable and I think might add value to your life. Uh, if you want to subscribe to this uh, newsletter, you can visit my website, www.uiukpong.com, insert your email address, and you would have this uh, newsletter once in your inbox every week. It's just uh, very brief, uh, where I share philosophy, I share either a documentary I watched in the previous week, or a news article, a book, um, a video, whatever it is. And I just share it with those that uh, subscribe to the newsletter. So once again, if you want to get uh, to be one of those uh, subscribers, visit my website, uiukpong.com. Insert your email address in there, and it will be waiting for you in your inbox once a week. With that, let's get into today's show. So for today's episode, I'm having a conversation with uh, Sylvia Macario. Uh, Sylvia and I met during my time in Kenya, and I'm very excited that uh, she decided to come on the show. So let me tell you a little bit about Sylvia. Sylvia's experience spans over eight years in the fields of geospatial engineering and space technology, where she has helped start and launch technology companies on the capacity of overseeing business processes. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Geospatial Engineering and Space Technology from the University of Nairobi and a Master of Science in Information Technology from Carnegie Mellon University. She has worked with the United Nations and various other organizations, with the key contribution focus being the use of space technology for socioeconomic development. Notable among the projects she was involved in include the use of space technologies to map vulnerable groups in the informal settlements to help show area vulnerable to disaster risk. In 2013, she co-founded a startup company, GeoWiz Services, while still a sophomore in geospatial engineering and space technology at the University of Nairobi. This technology company focused on utilizing geospatial te technologies for social good. Her main role was on business development, fostering partnerships to enable the company deliver services to both public and private sector as well as organizing volunteer activities in that space in Kenya. She's also a Global Shaper member under the World Economic Forum at the Kigali Hub, where she continues to offer her time and expertise in developing societies in Rwanda and beyond. Alongside her volunteer activities, she's the co-founder of Hepta Analytics, a machine learning and big data analytics company registered both in Kenya and Rwanda. They are focused on working with organizations in the African continent to make quality decisions faster, cheaper, 
and on real time using the power of data. She writes occasionally for various blogs and news websites where she continues to share her passion in space technology, advocating for investment in the space technology sector in Africa as a possible and viable driver for change in all sectors. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sylvia. Hello, everyone. I have a, a lady here that I'm about to have a conversation with. And if I tell you how we met, it's going to be very interesting. I'll tell you anyway. So uh, I met this person in Nairobi. Uh, I, used to attend, I used to attend a gym in, in Nairobi called AlphaFit. Uh, if you go to episode two, I had a conversation with the owner of AlphaFit. And this, she was on the porch of the gym uh, doing something on her laptop very serious. And I just saw her and I just went and sat behind her and was doing my thing. And she turns around and you know what she says to me? Nice beard. And I'm like, okay, well, thank you very much. And that's how a conversation started. And the next thing that happened blew my mind away. You know, we got talking and everything. And I said to her, so what do you do? And she says, I'm in the space industry. I almost died. I knew from then I had to get to know her. And I'm so glad that I could call her a friend. Someone that travels a lot, I have to admit. So to have, to have her on the show today is, uh, is really by God's grace. Let me put it that way. But I have I have with me Sylvia. Sylvia, how are you doing? I'm great, UI. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Well, am I, telling the am I telling the truth? That was the whole truth. But you missed part of it. Oh, please, please, please feel the audience in. What part did I miss? The part where I tried to... When I started engaging in conversation and then we started talking about random things, so like it was so interesting that we could talk about things that we relate to so easily for a person I met the same day. So that was mind blowing. Ah, uh, I see. Well, if uh, if I can really get someone that is someone in the space industry to be have a mind blowing conversation with, I think I've done a great job. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah thanks for that <laughs> but but in a more serious note my sylvia thanks for coming on the show i really appreciate it thank so, you for having uh, me no problem so i always start off the conversation because as you know it, it's it's unscripted and we're just having a chat i feel as if i'm sitting in someone's living room and we're having a conversation and drinking our favorite beverages and we forgot that the the record button was pressed my question to you is, what got you interested in the space side of things? Considering that, I'm, let's just be honest, space is not really a big frontier in the African political conversation or even educational conversation. So how did you get interested in space? It is now becoming a very apparent um, conversation because of yeah. its, its use cases and all. So how I started in space was, it was through just by chance. Initially, when I was starting out, I wanted to be an aeronautical engineer, which mm. meant that I either went out to down South Africa or to, to the US to, to study for that program at university level. 
it wasn't being offered at university level in Kenya. So that was my option at the time. But then at the time, my siblings were also in college and they were being sponsored privately by my parents. And I didn't want to burden my parents. And yet I had an opportunity to go through college fully funded by government scholarship because I was one of the top uh, top students after after high school who was able to have that privilege and opportunity to go through college without paying anything, but also like minimal fees, uh, if you will. So my natural progression was, okay, what is the next closest thing to aeronautics that I could do that, that, that actually makes me get into that space of, um, of being part of the space industry. And that's how I ended up choosing geospatial engineering and space technology offered at the University of Nairobi and pursued the course. For the first semester, I was just trying to try the waters and see what, what, is, what is out there with this course, trying to read a lot, try, trying to understand what my opportunities would look like in terms of career. And that's how I ended up loving it. And I've never looked back. So I want to go back to almost like the genesis. Growing up, when you were a child and a toddler and all that, was sci-fi space, was that in your, in the conversation at home? Was it Jetsons uh, as a, a cartoon? What was it? Because and I'll be honest with you, until I met you, I don't mm-hmm. know of anyone, I don't know of anyone in my childhood that, even talked about space as a career. Yeah, that, that's a good question. I think it's it wasn't really more about cartoons or conversation on sci-fi. Obviously, a few movies contributed to that, but then mostly it's due to my mother. She was teaching oh. physics. Oh, okay. And literature, she was just very fluid in terms of the courses she was teaching her students. And then there were so many books lying around on math and science. And as a curious child, I constantly tried to like plow through the books and see what, what's there. And seeing aeroplanes and all these complex mathematical equations, I was very young and I was like, I want to do this. I want to be one of the people who <laughs> comes up with an equation and the equation get named after them. Of course, I haven't come up with an equation uh, yet, because I'm still alive, I have an opportunity. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think the genesis is my mother and just generally growing up in a household that encouraged curiosity as well as just trying to see what you want to do and them supporting you fully with that. Mm. Now, when we were having a conversation prior to coming on the show, you also wanted to be a pilot at one time as well. Yes. So, so if, 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 you, if you really get to look at it, pilot, aeronautic engineering, space, everything has to do with anything up there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love being in the skies. Yeah, I guess so. So, so was the transition from pilot to the space side of it? Why didn't you? Why did you? Just, why did you drop the idea of being a pilot? I felt like, um, so again, the pilot track was based on private private uh, sponsorship. That would mean 
parents spending copious amounts of money to become for me to become a pilot. So I did two weeks because it was a two weeks free training that was being offered because a friend's dad runs a school and I did that for two weeks and I was like, I kind of like this. Maybe I should pursue it. But then at the same time, I was very conscious of the fact that I needed to unburden my parents from that whole aspect. I've always been a very independent minded person in terms of I want to do things my way. I want to acquire things for myself. So for me, it was let me utilize this opportunity that I have to study uh, at university level. And then I'll do other things like being a pilot later. I get a, li- a license as a, as, a, as a private, whatever, Pri- mm. fly privately or commercially. If I get to that point where I feel like, um, well, then let's go back to the skies. But for now, my natural progression was, Let's, let me take this scholarship, run with it, and see what that comes off with. Mm. Yeah. This, indep- this independence that you have, most times is associated with people that are the first born. Or, so are, are, you the, are you the first, or are you the middle, or are you the last? <laughs> well, I'm not, I'm not close to the first. I'm the fifth born in a family of seven. Oh, that's a big one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I'm... Uh, Am I a middle child? I don't think so, but I'm close to the young ones in the family. I, we are like me, my sister, and my brother, like the babies of the family. But then at the same time, everybody, it's because of the encouragement of, um, again, my parents constantly trying to ensure that everyone has a different mindset, seeing us as different entities from one another and trying to just encourage that uh existence as a person you don't i don't have to be like you i because you are is my big brother or anything else so it was encouraged for you to be your own person and try to be uh yourself in whatever you do because at the end of the day you'll have to exist as your person as your own self as you move through the world Mm. now this space technology program you took in university of nairobi um let me backtrack and say I did not do university in 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 Africa. I did I did my university in Canada as bachelor's sure. program, but my 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 high school was done in Nigeria. And one of the things that I struggled with when I first came to Canada was my secondary school education, which is high school education, was very very heavily theoretical, not a mm-hmm. lot of practical. Now, when you're doing like a space technology program in University of Nairobi, was it was there any ability to do any form of practical stuff or was it highly theoretical as well? Very because practical, spe- actually. Uh, engineering, practical. Yeah. Okay. So theory, the first, the first two years is heavily on theory for you to learn the foundation, the foundational knowledge on engineering and the principles that you have to apply for various Obviously, that's where physics, mathematics comes in, as well as uh, the hard sciences. Well, there's no, there's no, there's nothing hard about science. Depends on who delivers <laughs> the science to you as a student. So there's that foundational knowledge you get the first two years, and then the rest of the years is more of theory and practical. So there was a bit of mix uh, in between. The reason why I'm going back to that question is. Where is the practical done? Because the space agencies in Africa, I, uh, you can educate me on the audience. 
Mm-hmm. Do we even have? Do we even have a? Do, do we even have a space program in Africa at all? No, that's when, a good when, question. When you were studying in university at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, that's a good question. The the only access we had in terms of uh, practical was mostly based on the software side of things. We, we the, the program or the curriculum is developed in such a way that we are not building rockets uh, for this course. For this course, we are looking at, so the space technology is divided into two uh, aspects. There's the upstream. Upstream is when you build rockets and launch them to space, to outer space, to go collect information and all these things. And then the downstream side is where now this information has already been acquired up there and there are base stations. Base stations are like receivers of this information from satellites to, to the ground. So the aspects of the curriculum are mostly focused on the downstream side where you are now able to understand, okay, this information has been acquired by this satellite, which was launched, for example, to do either research on um let's say soil moisture in a particular country or particular area in, in a country. And then from there on, it's about processing the data, piecing together information to make sense out of that for you to be able to make decisions. And this mm-hmm. is either you're supporting ministries like agriculture, meteorological departments, and all those things. So mm-hmm. mostly my curriculum is on the downstream side where is from processing and creating software that processes this data and processing the data to get to the end user while it's very usable or understandable mm-hmm. to make decisions. Ah, oh, got it, got it. So that is basically the kind of practical stuff you're able yes. to do at exactly. the University of Nairobi. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so, so when you went to do your master's at Carnegie Mellon, by the way, guys, if you don't know this, Carnegie Mellon is rated as, I think, the top program for engineering in the world am i correct yes top three top three in- engineering and tech Jeez. in the world very competitive <laughs> how, how how did you if, i'm just asking the question how did you even dream about even going to Carnegie Mellon with that kind of highly competitive kind of setting did it did it did it, did it come to you or you went looking for it i think for me it was uh based on um I had top three schools that I needed to get into for me to be able to achieve my dreams because I've always been focused on Africa and my objective has always been how do I get the skill sets that will enable me to really make an impact in Africa? Because I want to live in Africa. I don't want to escape and go live somewhere else. I want to live in Africa. I want to go, I want to go somewhere else for vacation and come back home. Uh, without really always trying to validate, to be to be always othered in other countries. Oh, you're black, you're a woman, and all these things. I don't want that. I want to live in a country where I don't have to continuously try to, to, to prove myself as, as a human being. I just want to exist as a human being. So I looked at three schools, and Carnegie Mellon was one of them. So it was MIT... Columbia, and then Carnegie Mellon. I got to all this. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing. I'm laughing because so all of us I are got thinking of... 
we're thinking of we're just thinking of state universities. My my dear friend here is thinking of the top top top. Anyway, please continue. <laughs> Because the, that's where I felt like the tools that I needed would be provided in a, in a way that made sense to me. So I got into the schools, all the three schools. I went, attended Columbia for like half a semester or full a Was it half? Yeah, half a semester. So I dropped out of Columbia when Carnegie Mellon came knocking with a full scholarship. So I got a MasterCard Foundation scholarship. And then, so they have this model where you can study in the U.S. for one semester and then three semesters for your master's in um, in Africa. So Carnegie Mellon now has a campus in Africa called, uh, in Rwanda, it's called CMU Africa. So Carnegie Mellon African Campus, mm-hmm. which is very, which was very, very monumental for me because I felt like it was, good to spend time in school in a different African country, get to learn their culture. It was also very close to home. Ah, did did you get into MIT as well? Yes, I did. Okay, why did you choose Carnegie over MIT? MIT is like the, 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 the daddy of all of them, I think. Carnegie Mellon and MIT are on the same path, only that Carnegie Mellon doesn't make enough noise like MIT. (laughs) <laughs> interesting because i would think mit is like the genesis of technology like no they make they... a lot of noise Carnegie Mellon is a private research uh institution mit is i don't know whether it's publicly funded but then uh Carnegie Mellon is privately held so they it's like more low-key but then research makes it shout by itself without having to shout I know MIT people listening in are going to kill me, but it's, it's what it is, guys. Hmm. So, so you went to Carnegie Mellon. Yeah. And what, what was the focus now? You've gotten the Bachelor's of Space Technology from University of Nairobi. Now going to a master's, were you specializing in something particular in the space agency or the space world? Or what, what, was, the, what was the objective there? And, and so... The curriculum or the course that I took in um, undergrad was geospatial engineering and space technology. Okay. So my natural progression was, okay, I'm interested in software and what software can do to support work or programmatic work in the space of uh, ge- uh, space sciences, which is earth observation. So earth observation is you've launched a satellite to space, it's looking down on earth, and it's trying to pick particular information, as I mentioned earlier, whether it's soil moisture to help farmers um, prepare better to plant crops that they need to plant, or ministries of agriculture in terms of just trying to understand what is going on in terms of food security to, to make sure that their people are, are cushioned against any, any famine, uh, impending famine and, and stuff like that. So software was very keen. I was very keen on software, and that's why I decided to go with information technology, which involved building, writing code, trying to understand cybersecurity, all aspects of technology and how they are interconnected, as well as a minor in uh, entrepreneurship. Mm, Okay. Because when you were in University of Nairobi, you you actually started a company, I think Geoways or something like that. Yes, Geo Services, which died after, 
after my co-founders and I graduated. What was the, why was Joey's services created? Uh, initially, it's just, again, I'm very community driven. And for me, whenever I see problems, I try to come up with solutions. And my co-founders then had, also, had a similar mindset. We wanted to create an environment where engineers thought about creating companies rather than just finishing school to go out there and get employed. How can we make impact as engineers that just going to be cogs in a, in a big wheel in, in institutions? So mm. for us, that was the very, very initial perspective. And we started bringing in speakers to just speak to students, especially speakers who are from the engineering background and who've gone on and started companies. And we went on uh, doing that and eventually started uh, working on projects to bring in revenue. Mm. And how did that go? It went well. We were cushioned in, uh, within the institution because we were collaborating with some of our professors. But then it got to a point where after graduation, you don't have the entrepreneurship skill set, management skill sets. Obviously, you easily get hammered. And, and we died like that because of that lack of those gaps in those skill sets that we, did, we lacked. Those people that you founded Joey Services with, are they still entrepreneurial today? Most of them went on to get hired by the UN and other institutions that are working in the space sector or using space technology to apply to various sectors in the development world. And they're doing well, but then at this, on the side, uh, they are also doing other things which are still entrepreneurial, not necessarily in the space sector, though. So you, are, you seem to be the true one that really stuck to the true mission of what why Joey's was created because originally they were like we're creating this company because we don't want to become cogs in big organizations and you are not working for the UN you are now doing your own thing with an entrepreneurial organization again so maybe you're the one that was truly sticking to the true core mission of why <laughs> everything was created in the beginning <laughs> yeah I think situations lead people to potentially do that you have family obligations as well as things to just keep on doing that lead you to making such choices. So I really don't blame them. Mm, true. So so in Carnegie Mellon, you finished the one year in the United States and then the other the, the remainder of the program, you now moved to Rwanda and that's where you finished that the remainder of the program. Is that correct? Okay, so the one thing that I have, I've always wanted to say about you is I feel as if you are like a polymath. Like, mm -hmm. space is there. I am, also, actually. Yeah. Okay, all right, fantastic. So there's space there, and then I've seen you talk on stage with uh, the World Economic Forum on data science, which is basically saying data, data is going to be the new oil. Mm -hmm. So... So is this data, are you also a data scientist as well? Because the, the company, the company you're part of right now, which is a group of ex Carnegie Mellon uh, yeah. alumni is called Hepta Analytics. And it's about, mm -hmm. it's about um, 
getting all this data and making sense of this data to your clients, correct? Absolutely. So, so how does that tie in again with space? That's that's I think that's what I've been thinking about. You like, okay, where do I put Sylvia really? <laughs> I am a polymath. I read a lot. I read everything I can say from philosophy to economics to engineering. I just don't only focus on my trade or career. So for data and space, space technology is the acquisition of data, right? Okay. You use space technology to acquire information, which is being used. This information is data that is going to be used as uh, as something to develop something else. For example, as I mentioned, a satellite is launched to space for research purposes. And that research would be to understand environmental degradation from a certain period of time for the past 10 years to, to help environmentalists make decisions. So that information is collected by this satellite and then received on the ground. And then these environmentalists are able to process the data to understand what has been happening for the past 10 years, for example, to the point where we are today and what mechanisms that, for example, the government needs to put in place to ensure that there's no more damage that is happening as well as just protection for the humans that are existing in that environment. So it's all about data. It's all connected in terms of its data, whether it's in image format or any format, Excel format, or anything that has to do with information coming together and trying to piece that to make sense out of it. So it's really all connected. Technology, what space technology is about is collection of information. How do you use that information to make decisions? And just generally the skill sets are almost similar, only that this aspect was for my master's was focused on software now understanding how it's built and how you deploy that and how you make sure that the accessibility security and all these aspects are taken care of guys i'm listening to this conversation and i'm just like jesus sometimes you just speak to people and you just realize that some people are not at your level anymore man <laughs> you are <come> on. <laughs> <laughs> so so we are going to take our first water break and then we'll be back with um, Sylvia on the other side to continue this conversation and how she's continued to progress her career. And when I spoke to her the last time, I was I started to chuckle under my breath because she said she was doing a fellowship. And I'm just like, it never stops with this lady, I tell you. So please stay with us. We'll be back. So for today's episode, I wanted to do something different in the interlude, which is I wanted to do a trivia. And as you've listened to the first part of my conversation with us, Sylvia, you've gotten to know that she is in the space technology and geospatial engineering sector with uh, data science as well. And she shared something in the latter part of our conversation that got me very interested, or not interested, I apologize, interested. And I was curious and I was like, wow, that's very impressive. Well, not impressive, but I didn't know. So I was impressed with that information, which is, so the trivia question is this, how many satellites 
not how many satellites, how many countries in Africa have launched a satellite into space? And three multiple choice um, answers. A, three. B, seven. C, 15. Don't cheat. Don't Google it. Just get the answer in your mind. And in the latter part of my conversation with Sylvia, you'll get the answer. And hopefully you're right. If you're wrong, at least you've gotten to learn something new, just like I did when I um, had her tell me the answer to the question. With that, let's get back to the conversation. So I am back, or we are back with Sylvia. And uh, Sylvia was basically sharing with us before we had to take our first interlude there that um, you know she was trying to help explain to us how hepta analytics is all about data and taking that data and basically presenting it to their clients in a very presentable manner to achieve the purpose of why uh, that would help the clients make uh, the business decisions for their practice. My question when I was listening to all this was, is this entrepreneurial thread that I'm seeing here, which first happened at Jewish services in the University of Nairobi, and now it's happening again with Hepta Analytics. And <clears throat> I was making a joke that of all the other people that were with you with the first organization, you're the one that has really stayed true to the mission of why that first organization was created. In your in Growing up, was any of your parents or uncles and aunties entrepreneurial? Where did this entrepreneurial side with... Because there is... It's, I've come across a lot of engineers in my time, and engineers can be very typecast set of people. <laughs> True. That's, yeah, that's you, not far from the truth, yeah. But you are a people person. Mm-hmm. You are an, you are an engineer. You're also mm-hmm. very good in you're also very good in public speaking. And yeah. then you're inter- then you're entrepreneurial. It's like you have all the skills wrapped up there. Where did this entrepreneurial side of you come from? Combined with the independent side again. Yeah, no, I think I would say um, my dad, my dad has never worked for anyone. I think the first time he tried to work for someone, he got fired and he never went back. <laughs> okay. I think he was like, fuck this shit. Oh, sorry. I think you'll have to censor that. <laughs> you, can, you, 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 can, you can, it's a podcast at the end of the day. Yeah. So I think he, he was like, yeah, because when... It's about questioning authority. I think that's also something I get from him a lot. Questioning authority. Why Why am I doing what I'm doing? <laughs> why does it make sense? Does it have any impact kind of thing? He's also like fundamentally someone who loves helping other people, but then he has to see where this progression of things are going in terms of, um, in terms of um, impact. Mm. But then at the same time, my mom also had... Um, um, besides being an educator she also had like a business going on at the same time so it's all these aspects of my dad and his family and then my mother and how she looked at things she she would always see potential for creating a business out of something i think that mindset came out and um i think it's 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 something that i i carried on from them in terms of how you just don't exist as one entity. There are several other things you can do as a human being. Uh, you have to exploit mm. your potential as much as you can with the resources you have. 
So, so Hepta Analytics was how how was Hepta Analytics born? It was born out of uh, uh, trying to support the civic education for voters in Kenya in 2017. Oh, so we oh, don't Sorry, sorry to interject. Don't tell me you were partnered, you were, you were affiliated with Cambridge Analytica in any chance. No, and, and okay. that's why like, we didn't release this model. Well, let me give you the background story on how this thing happened. So in 2017, we were school, uh, graduate school, studying all these incredible technologies that could potentially revolutionize things in terms of how you streamline processes. And when we were looking at the very first thing that we thought about was, oh, okay, Kenya is going to hold elections in 2017. And um, at that time, we were meeting up for cultural night. So how Carnegie Mellon does things is there's a time and period during the semester when people from all cultures come to showcase where you're from and you know what you have as a culture to the rest of the students and when we came together we we're like okay what can we do for a country to just support towards voter education or civic our just delivering a civic duty using technology and we created this model that could um harness data from twitter and you could easily tell when these negative uh negative um backlash from from the public you could tell what happened based on the trends on the model in terms of the the graph so it dips when there's negativity and then goes up when there's positivity and and we were comparing Uhuru Kenyatta and uh, Raila Odinga at the time and we didn't release it because of the issues that came up Cambridge Analytica because we didn't want to be eventually associated with that as well as having um Someone got killed, an ICT practitioner, at the election uh, IEBC, is, which is is it is it the guy that they wanted his finger? Yes, to go run okay. it on um, biometrics to access the to access the keys to to the database. So yeah, we didn't release that because of that, and and several other issues, and we decided to divest and look at other aspects at, at like verticals like agriculture or just creating systems that enable people to get data, analyze that data, and then use it to make decisions. So we divest completely from politics. Hmm. Yeah. So, so which vertical did you guys, did you guys decide to, to start Hapta Analytics and focus there to basically build the business from? Very agnostic. We, we don't... Um, unless there's like a policy issue that prevents us from doing things. For example, in the health sector, they are very, very, very conscious of uh, patient data. You know, you end up sharing information about a patient and what they are going through. You'll find an insurance coming to hammer them with um, different schemes for their insurance because, oh, this person has pre-existing condition and all those. I think data protection is very fundamental in, in sectors like the health sector, financial sector as well. So how you play around that depends on the level of accessibility and cybersecurity. That's where cybersecurity comes in. How do you protect people as much as you're trying to process that data 
to help an, an organization make a better and quality decisions. So we are very agnostic and we are in three, we do our Sorry, so, uh, please pardon me. When you use the word agnostic, sorry, I, the, when, when I hear agnostic, the only time I've ever used the word agnostic has to do with a religious <laughs> setting. No. What, what do you mean by that word in this context? We don't limit ourselves to sectors. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah, I think that's what agnostic means. We are very open to working in any sector as long as we can know how to deliver quality work within the jurisdictions of the policies, uh, within um, that jurisdiction, for example, as well as uh, the level of accessibility and who has uh, access to what. So building systems, analyzing the data, using cloud in, cloud systems, cloud information technology or cloud infrastructure to support that movement of data from physical servers to the cloud and whichever way the client wants this to go, we are always ready to do that. Hmm. So so basically, Hepta Analytics was born even before you guys even finished your master's program at uh, Carnegie Mellon. Um, was this, was the company completely bootstrapped to where it is or did you guys have to get funding yeah it's completely bootstrapped even at the moment only one product is funded so bootstrapping meaning we were very lucky to get a very initial project while we were students as well as just competing on this um the competitions that the flyers that were being released, we compete, we win this money and just put it on the business and try to do things that, um, and somehow out of the pocket during registration process to formalize the the company and make sure that the our legal processes are like uh, in order. So mostly bootstrapping and also executing projects to get the money in and build the current products that we have. So how has it been like running this kind of business in the African uh, continent, in the continent of Africa? Uh, are you finding that uh, SMEs, aside from the large organizations that have got footprints in other parts of the world, the local African company that has its footprint within the continent alone, are you finding uptake with those kind of clients? Do they see the value in what you guys are doing or you you literally have to educate either someone at the top to understand that this is necessary and you guys need something like this to be able to make good business decisions? I won't lie, it's it's hard, especially in the African continent. And the context here is you find people who are very excited. Oh my God, I want a machine learning model for my organization or a data analytics um, platform for my organization and all those things. But then at the same time, they don't want to pay for the very initial processes of consultancy and educating them, as you've said. You have to educate them to give them options of what is available. But then you want people keep on coming with the first call, second call, third. By the time you get to the sixth call, you're like, you're just getting this, my intellectual property for free. You're not even paying me. So people don't want to to have skin in the game, which is an issue that we've had to deal with in the process in, in such a way that if the first two calls, we don't have a closing or something, we just move on. 
And sometimes you have to fire clients because some clients can drag you for the longest time, which is a waste of your resources and time, which would have been used to focus on other things that actually bring revenue to the company. So again, we were lucky enough to work with um, people who really believed in us, who know Carnegie Mellon. And also another thing is Carnegie Mellon is not as famous as MIT, for example, in Africa. Very few people actually understand how big and very impactful Carnegie Mellon is. For those who know, it's easy to work with them and to for them to believe in our skill sets for, for us to deliver the work. In hindsight, maybe the MIT would have worked. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still rooting for Carnegie Mellon. And now that it has a footprint in Africa, I believe it's going to have the impact it needs to have for people to, to know its impact in terms of how the level of quality of people it produces um, to, mm. to the world. Yeah. Now, just to stay on Carnegie Mellon there, why did Carnegie Mellon open up a presence in Africa and why did it choose Rwanda? Because a lot of these American um, institutions or universities, they always open up satellite um, uh, campuses, most times in the Middle East, like UAE, or places like that. Why did why did Carnegie Mellon choose Africa and why did he choose Rwanda? Yeah, there's UAE. The, Carnegie Mellon has almost like campuses almost every continent in the world, and Rwanda. Oh, okay. Yes, it's because of governance, as well as just the ease of um, doing business in terms of setup and buy-in by the government, and the government is very interested in upskilling its people to ensure that they, their economy gets to the information economy, which is the objective by 2030. And then we had, um, luckily they had um, former Carnegie, ex-Carnegie Mellon, who was Rwandan, and she was really ready to take Carnegie Mellon to Rwanda and just implement that. The same strategy is professors from the main campus who are also teaching on the ground, which is uh, very like very good to have the uh, same quality of in of education across the board. Uh, makes sense. Okay, yeah. so let me segue here. When I met you, one of the things that you also said to me that blew my mind away was you were trying to educate me that in, in Africa, there's a space agency that is being created. Am I correct? There are multiple space agencies in Africa, in various okay. countries. But then the African Union is trying to harmonize uh, the efforts that are being uh, delivered in various countries to to just ensure that the delivery process is seamless, resources are accumulated and being dispersed at levels that uh, are commensurate to what ca- countries need across the board. So this, these countries that, are, that have space agency programs I'm sure there are very few of them in the continent. Would you say South Africa, Kenya, Egypt, maybe, around or is there? Any... Sorry, around fifteen have launched uh, satellites to space, but then are you, more are you countries... serious? Yeah, Kenya, Nigeria, South Africa, Egypt, uh, Rwanda, um, Angola. Several, there are several countries have, that have launched. That, that have satellites in space. 
Yeah, but then they have launched it through other countries like Japan, China, and um, and what? Yeah, mostly yeah. Japan and China because they have launching pads and uh, the infrastructure that supports launching satellites to space, which we don't have as most African countries. And that's why the African Union is coming in to see what can be done because we have access to the coastline, especially in Kenya, for example, which makes it easy to launch a satellite because of low the angle to launching a satellite is lower compared to the largest angles that you have to use in other countries across the world. So that's why I think they are trying to do that. And there's a whole research center that is being built in Egypt to train engineers as well as every other practitioner that needs to be in the whole spectrum of space tech. Honestly, I am. This is the first time I knew I'm hearing that an African country has actually launched satellite or sorry satellite into space i've never heard of it before because uh-huh. let me t- no let me tell you why I, i'm kind of taken aback when i think of space agencies i only think of america russia china i didn't even know that i didn't even know that japan had had one because the reason i'm saying this is recently you remember when the war happened with uh ukraine and um and, and russia and then russian russian astronauts went to I think ISS center or something like that. And they were wearing the colors of Ukraine, mm. but, but people were like, they mistakenly jumped into this suit and they're not making any political statement. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I haven't heard of any astronauts from an African country with an African flag on their left sleeve or something. So, so when you said these 15 countries in Africa have launched satellites into space, are they using other platforms to do that, but not putting their name on it or something? I'm, I'm just, I'm just curious. Yeah, it's all, it's it's like uh, imagine um, imagine owning a house and then you want to to store something for someone. I come and store stuff for you. On on uh, you store stuff for me on 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 my behalf. That's like the concept where other countries launch on behalf of African countries, but then it's on their, it's, it's, it's African countries paying for space. That's oh. your satellite that goes to, uh, gets launched uh, by a rocket. And then whatever that satellite is supposed to do, that's what it does. So it's like you're renting space on a rocket in, in a, in a country that launches but for you. Basically a sublet in the space. Yes, sort of. If you, if you look at it in the terms of uh, rentals and uh, something like that. So these 15 countries in, in Africa that are sublet in this space, what are most, what are, what is the objective for most of these countries with that satellite up in space? Is there a particular reason why they are? Yeah. So it depends. That for Kenya, for example, it was for all Earth observation and I think it was for the environmental monitoring. You'll find different countries launching satellites for communication purposes or for navigation and all that. So it depends on what the country is trying to achieve in terms of uh, the economic uh, impact. Oh, wow. <laughs> I have learned something new today for sure. So why is African Union trying to regulate these 15 countries? It's really not trying to regulate, it's trying to consolidate. 
consolidate in such a way that if your country X and you're not able to afford to launch a satellite to space, how can all other countries contribute? It's uh, it's like picture the European Union coming together to pull resources and support one another through thick and thin, whether you can afford as a country or not. So okay, having so- resources being pulled together is way much better than just having every country struggling to launch satellite to for a particular purpose. When we know the entire continent, we have almost similar issues, which are varied uh, at, uh, at, at, at different levels. But then we can share this uh, resource to, uh, to apply at scale, if you will. Mm, mm, mm. Wow. Okay. So... When we last spoke, you said something that shocked me again, because as I said, you, you're a polymath when it comes to seeking information. And that was, you said something about Desmond Tutu Fellowship. Mm-hmm. And then also in your signature of your email, you also have Nelson Mandela Fellowship. I'm just like, where do I even begin with this lady? So <laughs> these fellowships that you are part of, why do you do them? And what's, what, 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 what is the value for you? So I consider myself as a long life learner. I love learning and trying to be around people, community, and just trying to see how other people think and what what are they doing out there that is impactful. Can I support? Can Can they support my cause? And through having that kind of mindset and thinking that way, it always somehow pulls me towards that direction of applying for fellowships with an opportunity to meet equal-minded people doing great things in their countries or running things that have impacted their countries while making money if if you're lucky to as well as just upskilling yourself uh for example the uh, mandela washington fellowship i left immediately after undergrad that's when i went for that and most people there were like early career people and I was just living undergrad. I was almost like one of the youngest people there, a few of the youngest of us that were there. And you get to learn from different people in different levels of their careers. And for me, just being in that space, it feeds it feeds my brain in that way, learning and absorbing knowledge and being able to see what else am I able to do beyond what I've already done in terms of uh, my skill sets. And that's how I also ended up applying to Desmond Tutu Fellowship because it's also on a different level, trying to train young African leaders to either check on businesses or careers in, 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 uh, in government and all sorts of things focused on the ethics and, and, and the foundational um, ways of leading from Desmond Tutu. And the other one was about Nelson Mandela and how he led and how do we honor that legacy. And I'm very Pan-Africanist. And so for me, those things push me to just apply because of that. And, and, and you can also say the networking as well. Yeah, absolutely. The networking, expanding your network, you have people to lean on to when you feel like you can't do that anymore so that's the beauty of like-minded people you have people to call on when you feel like you can't go on you learn from them what strategies 
are they using to get out of the, you know, to get out of a rat, for example, if they're feeling low, something like that. Yeah. Mm. So I'm all about, I, I tell Ben, someone, someone asked me one time, yeah, what's the vision of the eccentric CTY? And I said, I want to have conversations with people that are non-conformist, but also by having this conversation with such people, we are almost spearheading something called selfless inspiration. Selfless inspiration, meaning that someone is going to listen to this conversation that I'm having with you and you and I would never know that person, but because of something you, because of something you said of your story on, of how you built your career and how you built your life, they are inspired in a way to be able to do something. And then you have actually inspired that person, but you never know that person. So, so you as a Kenyan lady, you have achieved a lot in your career. You've really had big dreams and tackled um, sectors that most people in Africa, let me just be honest, don't even think of space and all this kind of stuff, fellowships and stuff. How does um, a woman in Kenya or Uganda or even Nigeria consider applying for these fellowships? Like what, what should they think about when they want to, to even think about how to even apply for a Desmond Tutu Fellowship or a Nelson Mandela Washington Fellowship or any other fellowship out there? How do, what, what, would, what would your advice be to that person? Uh, first of all, for the Mandela Washington Fellowship, they, they recruit yearly. So there's always like call to, for applications every year, each year on, um, on their website, which is Mandela Washington Fellowship website. And it mo- mostly the release of the call for applications is normally in September, if I'm not wrong. It's been a while since I was a fellow. So, and then for the Desmond Tutu, it's on nomination. Oh. And then it, yes, it has to be based on what are you doing? What is the impact that you have? The, you, ju- you can't just apply for the sake of applying. What are you doing and how can this fellowship support you in continuing with your work as well as amplifying your work because eventually they also help amplify your work by selecting you as a candidate and so you also have to think about what you want out of this and how is what you're doing going to be accelerated by this the mandela washington fellowship is divided into three tracks it helps that way because then you could be making an impact in an institution. You really don't have to be building something. You could be in management role and you're doing something really within your institution to advance uh, gender equality, for example, or just creating an environment that is safe for, for, for people to thrive in. So they have divided it into three tracks. There's a, the civic uh, leadership role, uh, track, and then there's entrepreneurship uh, track and then public management. So for me, I went for the entrepreneurship because that was my natural uh, progression in terms of uh, what I was thinking about um, to move on to. And then when it comes to um, Desmond Tutu Fellowship, it's, it was really purely based on my leadership journey as a, as a young African who is focused on really trying to create impactful institutions as well as contributing my skill sets to to that growth so so you yeah. opened your inbox you opened your inbox one day and you saw this email from desmond Tito fellowship is that how it happened 
yeah, I was nominated by a friend of mine who who really believes that I need to keep on advancing as a as a as a young leader. She's incredible. Um I I really draw a lot of inspiration from her. Uh she was she was also a fellow. You don't really necessarily have to be nominated by a fellow fellow. It could be anyone in your network that believes in you uh, uh, to just keep on advancing in this. So I was, I got nominated once nomination is not enough. So once you get nominated, then they send a form for you to start doing the actual application process. And after the actual application process, and then you have to wait for a decision where you are told whether you've been selected or not. And the very first time um, I was put on a wait list uh, because uh, they were like, oh, your your application was incredible and all whatnot. Uh, and, um, and I was like, okay, fine, next time. But then, I don't know, some window or some opportunity opened that I was, I was letting for the current, uh, for the past cohort, that 2021 cohort that just graduated. And uh, I was grateful to, you know, meet incredible people who are doing incredible things out here. So if you don't mind me putting your story out there, but the Desmond Tito Fellowship was in Oxford University. And yes. <laughs> I need to say that because when you told me you were in Oxford, I said, hey, Jesus. Oh, wow. My, my father, like, I'm my not father, tired. No? My, my father would listen to this and I was like, why, why are you not like her? I'm like, that. leave me alone. I am going on my own journey. Anyway, um, <laughs> um, <laughs> So when, when you do this fellowship, I've never done a fellowship before. I, I actually don't even know how it, what it what it entails. So when you do a fellowship, is it like a set period of time you need to leave work and go to this uh, school like Oxford in this, in this situation and stay there for a time period and learn about something that the objective or what they're trying to teach? Is that, what, is that what it entails or what does it really entail? So for the Mandela Washington Fellowship, it was a six-week program. You go and you're full-time in a, a university. So you get placed in a university, uh, 25 universities ac- across America, based on what you selected as your track. So six weeks, that means you're working, you have to like take leave for six weeks uh, to participate in that program otherwise you'll not be considered a fellow or graduate if you don't go through that for the tutu fellowship it was a mix of you do two weeks intensive we started with um cape town um stanenbosch in cape town and then um two weeks and then everything else was remote where you get to work in groups to conduct a research on leadership on africa come up with um, various scenarios on um, how you see leadership progressing in Africa and what you think are the key ingredients towards that. So that is through, it's a nine month program. So consider oh, it's wow. like another That's master's program. Yeah. It's like almost a master's program really uh, from Oxford because, some, <laughs> oh, because Oxford is, core, is the core co-implementer of the program uh, with uh, in collaboration with the Africa Leadership Institute, AFLI. So mm. in that 
so after the two weeks you massive then you do the research in group works and then you have your own community project that you have to deliver on which is what are you doing in your community and what project are you working on to deliver impact in your community as an individual now and then these things collaboratively you work on until the final leg which is in oxford and then london and then where you get to present your findings and your projects as well as just continued learning on various aspects on society um, across the board so it's a lot of uh, it's like drinking from a fire hose in a very short period of time i have a few questions that i want to ask based on what you just shared but i want us to take our second water break here so that uh, we can come back and well replenish for me to ask my follow up questions to what you've just shared so um I don't know if you'll be very gracious to stay with us for the next section Sylvia. Yes. Um for the next 15 minutes. Fantastic. So, uh, we'll be back with Sylvia. We'll just uh take a water break here. So, I have a public service announcement to make. And if you're under 30 years old and uh, you're listening to my conversation with uh Sylvia so far, I please want to implore you to get on the internet at the end of this conversation whenever you finish it or even now actually press pause get on the internet and search for fellowships you could hear from by conversation with Sylvia that most of these fellowships you know have a cutoff on of under 30 and you've also had the how uh, talk about the value of how this fellowship has helped to expand her network as well as uh catapulted her career so i want to implore you if you're under 30 to please search for a fellowship on there online and apply for it put yourself out there because you just never know and if you're over 30 you should also search maybe there are also fellowships for people over over 30 um if it works please remember me <laughs> remember me please send me an email and tell me hey you know what ui it worked and uh you just never know i will get to invite you to come on the show so that we can hear your story and how it helped your career and how it's helped your network to grow and uh, if you would do want to send me that email please email address is hello at uiukpong.com i'm really serious actually i want one person that listens to this say you know what i'm going to take the plunge and search for a, a fellowship somewhere in the world and just do it life is all about seizing chances especially when you get new information so that is the end of my public service announcement if it adds value send me that email all right let's get back with sylvia this initial conversation with Sylvia began on Friday, September 9th. And because of the wave this space technologist, data scientist and polymath and polyglot is <laughs> <laughs> we 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 had to press pause because she was going to meet a very high ranking official. Mhm. And um 
we decided to come back and on the show on a Sunday. So it's seven o'clock in the morning here in Calgary, which is uh, two o'clock or almost three o'clock in Nairobi. It's almost 5 p.m. actually. Oh, 5 p.m., my bad. So yeah. we're Sylvia and I are back to continue the conversation that we began on September 9th. So just wanted to tell you that we needed to bring out this story very, very much so. So happy to be back. Let's continue. So we have heard, um, Sylvia has told us how she got interested in space technology, how she got the education she's got, how she created two organizations in her time. And she also told us about fellowship and everything. And she also most importantly shared with you guys how if you wanted to get a fellowship, how the process is like. Some some fellowships you can apply for, some fellowships you have to be nominated or they have to come to you. The way I want to segue my conversation today with uh, Sylvia is she's very well traveled. And uh, I wanted to ask her how this traveling began, traveling on a Kenyan passport, the challenges that comes with that. And uh, mostly what has she learned from traveling? Because uh, I just want to give her a tip. I hope she wouldn't mind me saying this. Her WhatsApp profile picture is with her Didier Dropper. Welcome. Yes. So, <laughs> so yes. I've so, actually had people ask me if that's my husband. And I'm like, please? yeah. People please? who do not watch soccer that don't know who Didier Drogba is. Okay, so let's start with that. How did you meet Didier Drogba? <laughs> I met Didier in um, Kigali. We were on the same um, conference and he was speaking He was speaking after my panel um, and we were stuck together in a room as, as speakers were going uh, on stage. And that's when I was like, oh, my God, did you drug back? Because I used to be a Chelsea fan. And this yeah. was due, due to my very fast relationship. I, I dated. Um, he was a really good friend of mine. I All my exes are really, my, are really good friends of mine uh, because you find that you end the relationship in good terms and you continue being friends, not necessarily romantically um, linked. And that's also like the boundary that we have always enmeshed a lot. So because of him, I started watching Chelsea and Chelsea made me love Didier Drogba because, well, African, you have to support your own. And yeah, and I finally met Didier Drogba. Mm. Now, I'm also a Chelsea fan. Actually, I even have a tattoo of Chelsea on my hand here. I don't know if you can see it. Oh, wow. So this was, <laughs> yeah. uh, this was, this was my commemoration to Chelsea after we won our second Champions League two years ago. Um, Didier, yeah. Drogba, Didier Drogba, of course, played in one of the greatest teams in Chelsea's history with Frank Lampard, John Terry and all that. What, what was, what was, who, how was Didier Drogba? He's, he's a very magnanimous character on the, on the field. Is he the same in person? He's very lovely. He's a very warm person who is, has a great sense of humor. You wouldn't even know this is this famous person that I think that's also the thing with um, famous people. They like, they like being in spaces where their humanity is considered rather than their fame. And for me, that space for the dear drug bar just was a very typical place where he was more decompressing than just trying to be taking photo ops. So although, although people were all, all there trying to take, um, selfies and taking pictures of him but i guess it comes with that title 
But then you can literally see him how just easygoing he is. And I guess just as a person over the years, as he has transformed to being this humanitarian, uh, he has a foundation uh, that he's running in his country. And yeah, it was uh, it was a lovely <coughs> to meet him outside of the high pressure environment, which is used to be like him playing for for Chelsea and stuff like that. Mm, I have to admit, yes, it's true because even his hairstyle now, that that clean shaven head, it just gives yeah. him a different kind of feel and aura. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you finished. Would you say your first trip was? To the, to the United States when you were going for your Carnegie Mellon uh, master's program? Oh, no. I went to the U.S. in 20... The first time in 2015. You but were before still in that, I started traveling at age 18 across oh, the my. region. Yeah. Okay. So how did this... As well as... Um, as I said, I've always been community-driven. You join uh, clubs that enable you to travel outside either your country or just across the region, um, across the borders through road transport or just by air. I've never gone through water in in Africa. I'll try that, but I have no, I've never tried that, yeah. Have you gone through water in some, some other continent? Yes, I have. I went from Miami to uh, Jamaica to... Mexico? Was it Mexico? I can't remember. Jamaica, Cayman Island, Bahamas. Um, um, yeah, there were five countries. I've forgotten. But that was through a cruise ship, which I can't do now because of COVID. Yeah. Mm, I've actually never done a cruise ship before. My friend that has done a cruise ship says it's one of the best experience. It was fun. Staying on water for five, almost six days. <laughs> and then you start thinking about um, the Titanic and you're like, oh, no, I, I need to get my mind off that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> it, was a good, mm-hmm. it was a good experience when it lasted. But now with COVID, I'm, I'm not sure what the industry looks like. Yeah, but that kind of travel is not really immersive, though, because you're not really seeing these countries per se. You're just going through the countries, right? Yeah, you just stop for a few hours and then you're on board again to continue the circuit but it's mm. a good experience it's it's an experiential uh way of it of 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 travel mm. Mm. yeah what, what is what is special about this cruise cruise traveling what, why do people do it because i feel as if it's kind of claustrophobic in a way i think it's the activities on the cruise ship oh <laughs> it's like a massive giant house moving on water and there are different activities in different rooms happening. So you get to experience that on the ship, as well as those few hours you get to experience those countries and get to buy souvenirs and just see the very few aspects of the country and move on to the next one. Hmm. Do you, when you're in this cruise ship and because it's so gigantic and it feels as if you're in this big house, do you sometimes mm-hmm. even forget, do you even sometimes even forget that you're in water? Yeah. And then you oh. look down and you're like, oh, shit, I'm on water. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. it was a so, good experience. So have, in your travels, have you ever gone to a place and apart from education, have you gone to, have you traveled to a place and immersed yourself in the culture and tried to understand and just live there as a normal local? I think Kigali, um, 
Rwanda was like my major one and it was very fundamental in terms of I'd always wanted to live in an African country and this happened really perfectly in terms of aligning um, my schooling as well as just meeting my co-founders who decided we set up our first entity in, in Kigali. We were also registered in Nairobi, but then that's where we decided to have like the headquarters. So being in an African country, learning the language was very difficult. I tried, I've tried, still trying. Well, what, what language do they speak? Kenya Rwanda. That's the national language. Oh, the most, yeah. if it, unlike, unlike Nairobi or Kenya, where I can still communicate with people in English, I will not be able to pull that off in Rwanda. You can, but they mostly like uh, gravitating towards speaking their language. I think it's also part of decolonization by the president, which is, I commend him actually. And uh, also just unity for the country, uh, as you know, their history and where they are coming mm. from. Yeah. Mm. So their food, just trying to learn and understand. Uh, uh, it's been incredible. I would love to visit other African countries, uh, at least uh, in my lifetime. All of mm. them in time. Yeah. How is life in Rwanda like? I've never visited. It's not Nairobi. Rwanda is not Nairobi. If you're looking for a very quiet, uh, very clean, very secure, very not fast-paced, in between fast and slow, then Rwanda is your place to to go to, especially if you want to raise kids and you just want generally a quiet life that is not as expensive as Nairobi is. Uh, oh. Rwanda is go to, yeah. Rwanda is cheaper. I would, say, I would say the bills really add up quickly, but then the initial setup is not as expensive as compared to Nairobi. Mm, mm, mm. You have to I just see. know how to you budget and and live within your means because they import everything. It's a landlocked country, so um, you end up having paying. A higher markup compared to what you would pay in Nairobi. We already we have a port, so that's not a, a problem for us. So the cost goes down based on transportation in Kenya, but in Rwanda, everything else adds up really quickly because of taxes for everything that involves shipping and transporting goods and um, goods to to the country. Mm, mm. How how are the people like? One of one of the things I really liked about Kenya is. This um, I wanted to say Ubuntu, 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 Ubuntu. That yeah. Ubuntu kind of thing. You, as long as you bring peace, you're welcome. Is 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 Rwanda similar? Even though they had that um, episode yeah. that happened in the nineties, are they are they are they apprehensive of visitors? No, they are. They are very welcoming. I think that's cultural for all Africans. I guess. Uh. I've not been to North, North Africa. I've had like horror stories about North Africa. But then I guess Sub-Saharan Africa, most people are very welcoming. You're welcome to eat and make merry with, with my group of people without really trying to have yourself explain who you are and where you're from and everything. You just blend in easily, which is what Nairobi is. I think uh, also like it takes they take time to warm up to you, but once they warm up to you, uh, you're good. Mm. So, yeah. so with with all your travels, where's your favorite place so far? 
that you've visited? Favorite place? I wouldn't say I have a favorite place. I would say based on experiences and what the country had to offer, I would go with uh, South Africa, Johannesburg. Johannesburg is such a melting pot. But then at the same time, it has its own um, inadequacies when it comes to race and stuff like that. But then Johannesburg is such a, a very interesting city. It's just bursting with energy, commerce, and everything else that, um, I guess, compared to Nairobi, I think, I think yeah, South Africa takes, home, takes it home for me. I've been, I've, been, I, I've, I've been there three times. The longest, I've, the, lo the long, the longest I've stayed there was uh, seven months. Mm -hmm. and, and Johannesburg, every time I went into Johannesburg, I felt as if there was this energy that was about to explode. Like I never felt safe. I always was always keeping my eyes to my shoulders. I felt as I mean, if I was going to... Yeah. I felt as if I was going to get mugged anytime, especially when I was in traffic at the, at the stoplight. Mm. I, always, I always felt like someone is going to tap the window with a gun or something. But, <laughs> but, 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 that, but then there's that energy from the people as well. Especially the other Africans from everywhere who are just trying to make it there. So there's, mm. uh, there's that aspect. I think it's, for me, mostly it's from other nationalities from Africa who are trying to make it in uh, Johannesburg. Yeah. So could, could you live in Johannesburg with what you experienced when you were there? Not for too long, honestly. Or raising a family, no. For a short time, yes. Maybe Cape Town, if, if the, the race issue is solved to the later. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see how that race issue can be, can be solved, especially this, the xenophobic aspect of it. It's just, yeah. it seems it's so... Huge. It's massive. It's massive. It's a complex history but um i think you'll have to take time to read and understand where they're coming from and potentially what that looks like in their future uh, it's very it's a very huge behemoth history that sometimes you just don't want to delve into but i also feel that if nelson mandela was younger when he took on the presidency and stuff and was still alive as an elder statesman I feel as if yeah. he would have done. I think I feel as if he would have done something because he was all about forgiveness and stuff. And by the way, I went. I went for his burial. I oh, you did. I, I didn't go. I, <laughs> I I I I lined up for the viewing. Oh, okay. So I was I was in I was in South Africa when I was on my way to South Africa when he died, mm -hmm. and the pilot announced on the plane that Nelson Mandela has just died. And all of us, all of us, all of us were in the plane and route to South Africa. So you can imagine, like, what? So when I arrived, yeah. yeah so when when I arrived, um, we decided to go to see his body because they kept his body in the stadium. Yeah. And, and that is when I realized this man's impact. Do you know, Sylvia? We did not yeah. move. We did not move more than one kilometer in six hours. What? Was it that, like, were, were people so many like that? If my memory serves me right, I think they put his, they put the viewing in the J, JNB stadium. Yeah. 
Johannesburg. And yeah, the JNB, JNB, I think, is a bank. So, uh-huh. so the bank probably got the branding rights to be to have the name there, but they put his body, he put his body, so that the 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 normal. Let me let me speak uh, Swahili. The normal yeah. Wanain, the, the Wanainchi. Uh huh. Yeah. By the way, Wanainchi means the common man. The the common man can yes. the common man the common man can see his body, and myself and my ex girlfriend we did not move more than one one kilometer in six hours. It was Damn. crazy. That's when I realized what a life. So it felt as if mm-hmm. the it felt as if the entire country wanted to see him. Yeah, yeah. That, Because that what is, he did, they they believe that he was a the liberator. Anyway. Mm-hmm. So yeah. my, my my my, I'm just asking a question. I don't. I want. I want to get your perspective. Do you think if he had lived longer, he would have helped to really reduce the xenophobia? Honestly, you might. You you couldn't. I don't know. I I would say I would not. I would not know if that would happen. But I'm sure he would come up with policies that work towards an inclusive South Africa. But some South Africans have a very, very different view of Nelson Mandela because they call him a sellout and everything else. Everybody has a valid uh, way of the interaction they think they they had with Mandela or what they think Mandela was. So I guess just everybody has their own views on that. I have never met anybody that has got a negative opinion of Mandela. Ooh, you should speak to South African, Black South Africans, especially. That's interesting. Huh. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So story for another story. day. <laughs> I know story for another day. Yeah. The, the, so uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you was, every time I communicate with you, uh, by the way, uh, Sylvia has become a friend, even though we met on the portrait of the gym. Um, even one of the things that I've come to know about you is you're always on a panel speaking somewhere how did mm. this how did this speaking circuit thing begin for you i think it started from um undergrad as i said i as i told you i started a company in undergrad right and within mm. that period when you have to come up with business plan powerpoint presentation and you have to pitch in front of people And then you have to keep on improving that to deliver quality information that makes sense to the people you're pitching to because you're trying to get money or to get their buy-in as clients to work with you. So for me, that naturally progressed from there onwards to being a Mandela Washington Fellow. They also like trained us on um, on public speaking. What what should you look at? How should you deliver this and that? And I picked up on all those skill sets, all those uh, um, tips, and kept on working on my delivery of public speaking, as well as just talking about my passions or writing about them, and as well as just naturally going on to start speaking publicly in various forums across the world. Hmm. Yeah, is it? Can I assume that the biggest platform that you have? Uh, attested your voice to is the World Economic Forum? Yes, World Economic Forum. Mm. By ah. association as a, as a global shaper. What does that mean? 
So Global Shaper is the young, is the an arm of, for young people under the World Economic Forum. So our mandate is to contribute to society by making it better using our skill sets and it's voluntary. So you join before you, you get to age 30 and graduate after 33. And that's um, within those, that period of time, you're able to exercise your um, voluntary skill sets, not, not voluntary skill sets, your time, you, you take your time to volunteer and contribute towards any cause that you are interested in, whether it's education, climate change, um, technology and how it affects society and which policies to put in place, all these things. So it's one way of just finding community of like-minded people and working together with them. So World Economic Forum normally takes these young people and amplify their voices in whatever thing they are interested in or passionate about. So for me, it's space technology, technology, and how that relates to Africa. Wow! So how did how did you even find out about this? I never knew that it was. A, I never knew there was a, like an entry route like that with the World Economic Forum because every time I see you in the World Economic Forum and I see that blue thingy behind, I say, "Hey, Jesus, Sylvia!" Now, wow! So <laughs> <laughs> you are. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 was it because you went to a good school like Carnegie Mellon, and that's how you heard about this opportunity, or, or is it one of the fellowships, or how did you know about no, it? No, I think I, that's a good question. I think once you start applying for this fellowship, of course, community. You are. I gravitate towards community and what people are doing out there. Things just start popping up. Uh, you find that this fellowship, like Mandela Washington Fellowship, kick started off. Uh, this thing where they share opportunities uh, to alumni. And once they share opportunities, you find all these things that you could potentially be interested in. And when you see that and your values align with what this organization is trying to do, you just go ahead and apply. I think it's just one window that opens another window that leads to just other things happening. Yeah. yeah. It cuts cas- wow. cas- that way. Yeah. Hmm. Because even from a networking perspective, I'm sure it's really opened up your network for you. Yeah, it, it, it has. And you have to like be intentional as well because the World Economic Forum has the who is who, but then at the same time, which who is who is going to help you keep on accelerating your dreams or your work in, in terms of impact. So you also have to be intentional because it gets overwhelming really quickly. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, so if someone is listening to this conversation and wants to network the way you have network, because I consider you like, you know, <laughs> I have a feeling that you have this really big network. I mean, if you're taking pictures with uh, Didi Drogba and all this kind of stuff, if you want to, <laughs> if you, if you wanted to give advice to someone listening to this conversation on how to network intentionally, what would your advice be? I think just. People like rushing to, I don't worship people, whether you are like the most, I don't know. The only person I took a picture with when I was at a World Economic Forum was um, the World Trade Organization. Um, um, yes, because okay. I really like, I admire her. She's such an inspiration, an African woman rising to that highest level. There are so many barriers for African women even to rise to the highest level out there. 
And for me, that was like very, like it, it, it validates where I want to go to and how to get to that point. And she gave her story. She was the only person I took a picture with. Other people, I was like, yeah, you're a good person and everything else. You were selected to lead this organization because of your skill sets. And you could potentially, you're a human being. You can, you can be, you can be good today and crazy tomorrow. Like, I just try not to put people on a pedestal. So in that way, it helps me step back and try to see if I'm going to interact with this person, what do I bring to the table? Sometimes when you're a young person, obviously the only thing you can expect is to take than give. So you're like, okay, fine. Strategically, can I get either mentorship or can they introduce me to someone else that they know? You just, you vibe with people at a human level. That's how they vibe back with you. You just don't go like full-blown networking like Americans do. I always make fun of my American friends that they can sell you air because that's their model of living in the U.S. is just full-on networking without Sometimes you fail to consider the person uh, in question that you're trying to network with. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. So, so basically what you're saying is don't rush to cash the check. Yeah. Try to build a relationship. Try Try. Unless that person has given you an invitation like, yeah, I'm going to help you do this and that. Then go for it. But just try mm. to connect first. Yeah, mm-hmm. this is how we got here with you. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah. You know, Im- imagine if I met you in the porch yesterday, and the next day I said, "Come on the show." You're like, "Who the hell is this guy?" <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you don't even know me. Yeah, I think it's connection, 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 connection. Try and connect with people first. Sometimes these these famous people or these people who have made it are very. Sometimes they come to these spaces to decompress. Now you are, you want to add more work to them. Uh, people will just very, ignore you. That's a very good point. I didn't even think about it that way because for them, they are probably, they are being put in a pedestal so much. So sometimes they just want to it's feel normal. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. I didn't think about it that way. Yeah. You always have to think about them as humans first before fame. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. So let's segue to a section that I enjoy, which is uh, is a destabilizing event that has occurred. And most importantly, how how did you rebound from this setback for you? Ooh, uh, that's a huge one. I lost my mom last year in June uh, to cancer, which is a yeah, that is really, um, it's disturbing. The cancer is, it has become so rampant, especially in Africa, until you wonder what, to what end, when do we eradicate this? And obviously uh, you have big pharma trying to benefit and and um, get all the money that they get from from patients about that. So for me, my mom passing was very, you lose a parent, you 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 remain unanchored for a while. You lose a mother, that is like they someone has pulled a mat out of your your feet. You you have to like try and find a way to anchor yourself after that. So 
that is actually why I came back home to Kenya because I felt oh. like being back was more healing for me being 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 in Kenya than being away. So going and coming back is my way of also healing and feeling closer to my mom because I also v- visit her grave um every other month to just to just feel closer to her because um for me that is also like my healing journey and um the way I dealt with this is because um is is through just being present and understanding that death is very real and it happens it can happen to anybody even the best of the best of the people and living intentionally and trying to just be there for the people you love is is incredibly important as well as just yourself because we forget to we give so much and forget to take care of ourselves because at the end of the day you can't always pour out of an empty cup you know so you have to also take care of your needs and then take care of the needs of um your loved ones because your loved ones are the ones who are going to stick with you through thick and, and thin so the healing process has been much kinder because even before she passed on i came when i had the diagnosis was cancer i i left my apartment in kigali the way it was and left and came came home immediately so i was going to the hospital every single day for 6 months so for me being with her through that journey and her not hiding her emotions and also sharing that's what she was feeling i think has been major in terms of our healing as 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 as, as a family So the diagnosis comes you were in Kigali. Yeah. She pa- she passed on 6 months later. Yes, yeah, 6 months later, which always happens when you're in stage 4. Some oh. people heal miraculously, but then when you're in stage 4B, the potential for you making it is always like very slim. Doctors will tell doctors will tell you they're just prolonging your life, but then eventually you end up dying. So, yeah. Mm. I'm very sorry to hear that. Thank you. I also talk about death very openly. Some some of my friends think I'm morbid, but it's the reality. You can't separate death from life. Death is part of life, and you have to learn how to live life in such a way that if today was your last day on earth, would you be happy that I mean you wouldn't know because you would be dead, but then if anything happened, let it be known that you actually really lived. Is this outlook on death has it always been there or your mom's death is probably one of the things that's made it more pronounced for you? It's always been there. I'm a scientist. So for me I look at things very practically and pragmatically than trying to romanticize fairy tales that don't that are not there. I've also not gone to church for so long because I've all, I've wanted to foster my own spirituality as a human being. I believe I've I've started explore, exploring Buddhism because it's their way of life is I honor you as a human being and I can't harm you because if I honor you and I honor myself as a human being then we have to coexist in a way that enables us to live peacefully with the environment with ourselves and just foster an environment that makes us feel be be in the flow as as we earlier mentioned just just that way because i feel like sometimes 
religion really takes away from people in terms of thinking for themselves and being able to just really tap into their fullest potential when they need to. So we're going to press pause and we were, I want to still stay with this door that you opened because I, I didn't think we were going to open this door but you opened the door so we're going to stay there. So I'm going to be back with Sylvia and we're just going to take uh, our the break which is our final break and we'll be back with Sylvia. While taking this uh, water break and enjoying the music, which is, by the way, my favorite genre, jazz, hence why it's the signature tune for the show, wanted to remind you about uh, a weekly newsletter that uh, I produce every week, titled Three Nuggets Weekly, where I share with you, the audience, three things that I found interesting, valuable, that might add value to your life uh, during the previous week. Uh, like the, the newsletter that came out last week I shared with the audience a website called blast.com that I had found in my discovery where you can find as many book summaries as you want uh, out there it's uh, done by a guy called Richard Blast and he reads about 67 books a month that is a lot of books so I, I shared with the subscribers uh, to three nuggets weekly about that website I also shared a Bible verse that uh, spoke to me and that section actually of the weekly newsletter is done with myself and an individual by the name of Annie Sonny. I'm going to keep Annie Sonny as a secret for now. Hopefully one day Annie Sonny decides to reveal himself or herself to the audience. But yes, that's Three Nuggets Weekly. I hope you would... uh, subscribe to it you can go to my website www.uiukpong.com and right there on the home page it will ask you if you want to subscribe to three nuggets weekly and you can insert your email address and you would receive it every week in your inbox something nice tasty toasty whatever the word is with tea so when uh sylvia was answering the question about her unfortunate mom's uh, passing. Then she now opened the door that she, I got very curious about, which is Buddhism. Did did you get disillusioned with Christianity when you started to become a scientist? Or you've always been disillusioned with Christianity the way it's practiced in, in Africa, per se? I think it's the way... I read a lot, as as I'd, I'd mentioned earlier. I read a lot of um, literature from history to economics to everything else. And the genesis of Christianity and how colonizers came to the continent and forced our ancestors to adopt their way of worshipping and yet they had their own way of doing things. Like I have had so many questions about um the way Christianity is delivered and as well as just the Bible, the way it's written, everything is just against the woman. Like well, what did the woman do to me <laughs> to always, oh, don't do that. A man can do this. Like for me, it's always been, I've been always questioning things. And when I don't find answers, I try to look for alternative ways to find those answers. And I was also brought up in an, in a home where, my mom was a Christian. My dad didn't care about church. And no one was forcing us as kids to 
adopt to a certain model. So you had to like figure out what you want eventually, which is, I think that was also nice to grow up in an, in a home that you're not forced to do things that you really don't want to do. If you want to do that, you're an adult, if you don't want to. But obviously we gravitated towards my mom because as young kids, you, you want to be around your mother, not your dad. Uh, <laughs> for me, I hope, I, 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 I hope that is not my said dad for me. For hear this. We are very close. My dad and I are very close. But then I loved being around my mother at the time because mom is the one who is going to buy you all these sweets. My dad will say, uh, candy is going to make your tooth decay. Mom will buy that. My mom was very easy in terms of how she raised us. Um, you want to do something? Go ahead, do it. Break, learn, break the rules, learn and keep moving. And she was an educator. So you you can imagine how open she was in terms of uh, being able to let us do whatever we wanted to do. So, so, so when did Buddhism become something that you wanted to get to understand and learn about? It's just a way of life. I was curious, trying to understand. There's this monk that passed on last year, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, who... Sorry. Thich Nhat Hanh, that's what it is. Never, never heard of him. He's, he's been a monk. Um, even world leaders have gone to him to, trying to look for answers because he's so calm in his demeanor, he was, still is, uh, because he's transferred that knowledge to, uh, to other young and upcoming monks as well. Like, this is a person you, you look at, you, everybody around him could be stressed, but the calmness that the monks espouse and that whole being present in the now and here and being able to do whatever you can in the here and the now without not necessarily stressing about the future, you can plan about the future in the here and the now and making sure your mind is very stable as much as possible. For me, those are like some of the ideals I relate with in terms of how I want to progress in life, how I want to... Because the moment your body is trying to resist things, that's when sickness comes in. And for monks, that is one way of eliminating sickness and everything else. So being in the flow, in the here and the now is really fundamental. And that's why I was curious about their culture and why they do the things they do. And yeah, yeah, that's why I was curious about that. Do you meditate? Sometimes, but then I walk a lot. My meditation through walking, like every step I take is, part of my meditation process. Mm, mm, mm. You don't necessarily have to use your eyes to meditate. You could be like meditating to your steps that you're making uh, as you walk. Mm, I see. So is, is there any other quote-unquote named religion that you have explored aside from Christianity and now a little bit of Buddhism? I think it's no religion rule. <laughs> exist and just be a decent human being and live and tap into your full potential is, is what I've been trying to do. Like no religion, 
let people do what they want to do. Stop confining people to a certain way of living that doesn't make sense, that limits them from accessing their full potential. So for me, it's just living to the highest, fullest potential, which I still haven't tapped to that uh, potency that I need to tap into yet. Okay. Well, thanks for sharing. So, well. so you being a scientist, I, I am very intrigued about your answer to this question, which is a question I always like to ask every guest, just to to hear something like, let me see, why do I even ask the question? I think I always ask the question to see. Pardon all that guests that have come on the show, I apologize, now you're hearing the truth. But um, I think I ask, <laughs> question to see, I, I ask the question to see people's level of ambition, to be honest. Um, if, if failure wasn't even a word, mm -hmm. what project would you take on? Um, that's easy. Building the Africa Space Agency that unifies and shares resources for all Africans and being able to collaborate in a seamless way that enables us to communicate even with language barrier. We'd actually started that with my organization. We wanted to translate the web to 2000 plus African languages, but we kept on hitting, like hitting dead ends in terms of data that was required to enable that engine to work very perfectly. So, so let me understand this. You wanted to take the internet as we know it. Mm -hmm. and Every time you want to access the internet, you can decide, I'm going to choose this this language. And every yeah. page and everything I do on, on my exactly. laptop is in the language that I have chosen that I want to be a part of. Yeah, because most languages are either English, Spanish, Chinese. African languages are non-existent. So why, why are we being excluded from the economics of the web? So that's why we went on trying to do this. And for me, that's my dream. The moment we get to a point where even my grandmother in the village is able to access the web and read it in a language she's comfortable in, then my work here is done. Then I can die peacefully. What, what, what kind of roadblocks were you encountering? Lack of data. So because of color colonialism and how we were forced to speak English to by the colonizers, you find that digitized language, let's say uh, Yoruba or Igbo, it's very minimal. It's either in papers, in, in, in hard copies, which will take you a copious amount of time trying to digitize that and have that information online and then start trying to, to decipher what, what, is, what was being written there. So all those, that was thrown out because the colonizer wanted us to speak their language. So that information is very minimal. That's why you go online, it's digital is in English or other languages besides African languages, because we don't have people writing uh, in African languages to publish that in the web and have enough. So data, when, when, when you want to translate from, let's say Swahili to Igbo, you need enough sentences not to throw you off of, uh, of the facts or the whatever that sentence is trying to mean. You also don't want to 
so like the quality and just translation has to be like really 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 very accurate so with with less data then your accuracy level drops down Wow, you know, my head is just popping right now because there's an idea that I want to share with you offline when we finish this conversation. And I feel as if it's kind of intertwined with what you're sharing with me. But mm. this, pro this project you're talking about, this is a huge project. Yeah. Why don't you start another company and that is the, that company's mission instead of aligning it under Hepta Analytics right now? Oh, oh hold a second. Hold a second. Hepta Analytics is data. Yeah. It's part of Hepta. That's why we started. It's data. Translation is data. Oh my God. Okay. So, so it's a big project. It seems undoable right now. Mm. What is it? Would you say the major challenge is to get funded and then just keep on hitting these roadblocks? Or what is the, is, is funding the main thing or is it bringing all this? people with all this knowledge of all these languages and and how to do that is because that that is I'm thinking about that's it I was actually just thinking about Swahili because sometimes when I'm when I was in Kenya and people and I was in the midst of people and they were speaking Swahili and they started to laugh and then they, they realized oh hold the smoke there's a guy here called UI who doesn't understand Swahili so they try to translate it to me in English and they're like it's not going to be as funny as mm. it is with, it's not going to be as funny as it is when you hear it in Swahili. Mm -hmm. That then you try to do that with Igbo context, Igbo. yeah. Yeah, you want to even my language is Ibibio, so that is a huge project. It's almost like the Wikipedia of yeah. It's gonna take generations to actually get that to work perfectly. I mean, funding funding is a huge problem, but then the most you like heaviest problem that exists in this realm is the lack of data you need you need enough data for you to have as you've said not to lose context of what you're trying to see what you're trying to communicate because it could trying to be funny it has to maintain that when once you translate from one language to another so that's like data has always been a huge roadblock for so many people who are trying to get into this space have you have you started to work on have you have you started have you taken the idea from here to paper oh yeah we tried that we tried that with um kenya rwanda and then swahili and then once we tried to advance to other languages it became difficult to acquire data and then we had to pivot to create chatbots which are low lightweight in terms of data you just need minimal amount of data for you to be able to translate on a chatbot what is a chatbot, please? Oh, a chatbot is a virtual assistant. When you try to shop online, you have that thing that pops up that tries to ask you what, what's your next step or guiding you all those things. Oh, so basically that chatbot is has been designed by the developer to think of the kind of questions that the customer might be having in yeah. mind, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. so, so why don't you say, I'm just thinking, why don't you look at Sub-Saharan Africa and say, what are the top 10 languages in terms of popularity? And then just start the project with that, or even top five. No, I mean, that's not a problem. It's how enough is that data? It could, you could be top 10, but bottom in terms of the amount of information that is in the web on your language.
all the existing information already on yeah. the interweb. Yes, because oh. if it's not digitized, then it becomes really hard to access. So accessibility is an issue as well. But I hope someone with copious amounts of money and data access can can take on this project and run with it. So, so yeah, that's the project I would do if I had unlimited amount of time, money, resources, whatever. Yeah. So basically what you're doing right now is you are creating a white paper for it. Yeah. That's a very big project as I think about it. Wow. Okay. Can you imagine being able to just cross, uh, go across Africa without thinking about, uh, oh my God, they're speaking a different language kind of thing. You just go do whatever you need to do because you have this web application or uh, something that translates for you very easily and moving on like nothing happened. You don't have to deal with that friction anymore. So this Before is deeper than... This is deeper than Google Translate. Google Translate has done translation, but still context is out of its work. Um, yeah. Why not partner with Google? Oh, Ooh. data, data. <laughs> Google will partner if they, they have something strategic that is good for their revenues, which that angle we have to really search really deeply, which we don't have the... Uh, we don't have the privilege of time to do that right, right now. Yeah, because I, I was thinking about it as we were sharing us stuff. I was like, if someone is going to fund this idea, they're going to be funding this idea more as, as a non-profit kind of idea, not as a revenue generating project. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's, a, that's big thinking right there for sure. You have hmm. to think big. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Anyway, um, if uh, someone in the audience is listening to your story and says, man, I want to connect with uh, Sylvia, how, mm. how can they, how, how do you want people to connect with you? On LinkedIn, Macario Sylvia. That's the Macar easiest way to get me, yeah. Macario is spelled M-A-K-A-R-I-O. respond to things. Macario, M-A-K-A-R-I-O, and then Sylvia, S-Y-L-V-I-A. You're the first person that has said has said LinkedIn on this platform. Everybody's everybody says Instagram. <laughs> no, it, my Instagram is for my friends and people I know. If I don't know you, I can't. I cannot. I cannot even. I normally delete actually requests on Instagram. Mm. If I've ever met you, you don't have enough people that follow you that I know. And if in I don't know, like. It's, I don't, I just don't, I also don't follow celebrities on Instagram as well because I just try to declutter and try and create my own real life with my myself as much as I can. Because sometimes celebrities just have this weird uh, standards. They just want to keep on pressing on society that don't, don't make sense. They're doing that to, to be paid, obviously. But then at the end of the day, to what end? It's similar yeah. to how you it's similar to how you describe when celebrated people come to these platforms. They don't want any of that paparazzi kind of thing because this is where yeah. they're very comfortable at. So it yeah. seems as if that's that's the same thing you're doing with your Instagram as well. 
it's 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 a private account yeah so i'm I only allow <laughs> it's like admitting people <laughs> to to see can you imagine it's i can't open my instagram just how who you don't know me why are you following me i can't i can't i can't risk doing that to myself mm-hmm. and then you have to deal with people commenting on your stuff people you don't even know coming with their own projection they're projecting on i know i don't, i can't deal with that i like mm-hmm. being in my safe space and safe environment and trying to close that up as much as i can you're preparing yourself for what's what for how you're building yourself yeah it's gonna, there's, there's gonna come a time that you're like you are you have you have access to me now because you caught me very early ah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> I become a public figure and then I have to then have an account that is for public whatever but I will never open that up from like my personal Instagram account no yeah okay so LinkedIn what? LinkedIn LinkedIn all right so what's your final words to the audience to the listeners tap into your potential i believe that if we all really tapped into our potential the world would have been such a great place because if you and i are constantly trying to be better to just serve our purpose as human beings we wouldn't be we wouldn't be so focused on trying to do evil on other people and stuff like that i mean the world is set up in such a very horrendous way that that has to continuously happen to benefit a few people but believe in yourself keep on working on those dreams one thing or another will lead to you know something taking off fantastic well silvia thanks for having a I will call it a two-day conversation with me. <laughs> Thank you for having <laughs> me. I enjoy I really enjoyed this uh, conversation. Fantastic. Well, you take care and uh, when I'm next in Nairobi, I will definitely hit you up. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to the big day. <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to. All right, you take care now. Well, there we go. Another episode of uh, the show has come to an end. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with the guest and uh, learned something from it and a particular part of uh, his or her story inspired you to make that move, whatever that move could be for you. Uh, with that being said, please subscribe to the show. Uh, you can also leave a review. The review really helps the show to grow and gets... Uh, in the ears of other people um, also share with a friend someone that you know in your network that you believe this episode they need to hear this uh, you can share it with that individual uh, whatever podcast directory you use uh, look for the share option and uh, share it to that person lastly don't forget to go on the website www.uriukpong.com to subscribe to Three Nuggets Weekly where I share three things that I found interesting the previous week and uh, think may add value to your life. With that being said, I'm wishing you a great week and I will uh, come back to your ears next week. Have a good one now and do something crazy.
Bye for now.